Hey everybody, welcome to Listening at the Orange Door, a podcast where we explore empathy and mental health in a variety of professions. So far we've spoken to a leader, an engineer, a police officer and a singer. And we've learned so much about the challenges and opportunities facing professionals in those fields. It's such an important conversation to have. Uh, Coming up this year, we'll be speaking to a nurse, a tattoo artist, a vet, a lawyer. But if you've got any suggestions for any other empathetic professionals who would like to discuss empathy in their industry, please send them to me at leanne at loseyourmind.com.au and the joys of technology, they can be anywhere in the world. My name's Leanne Butterworth, and this is Listening at the Orange Door by Lose Your Mind. Today, we're discussing empathy in paramedicine with Tammy Bullard. I'm glad you're with us. All right, today we're discussing empathy in paramedicine, and I'm very excited to be joined by Perth-based paramedic and author, um, Tammy Bullard. Welcome, Tammy. Hi, Leanne. Thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited about this one because I have to admit, I don't know that much about the paramedicine world. It's sort of an enigma to me. There are these magical people who come in and rescue people, but I don't know very much about it at all. So what is it? Can you tell me a little bit more about paramedicine before we get into who you are and where you fit in the world? What is paramedicine and is it just ambos? So what's the world of paramedicine to start with? Okay. Um, Well, first of all, I love the fact that you think that we're magical people. (laughs) We're we're far from it. We we aim to please, but I wouldn't say magical, but thanks. It sounds lovely. Um, So the world of paramedicine is the pre-hospital arena, if you like. So uh, any uh, healthcare or emergency that happens before people get to the hospital In some countries, paramedicine can include um, paramedics, doctors, ambulance officers, ambulance-based nurses, uh, flight retrieval specialists. So basically, patient care that takes place before the hospital. Okay, so after first aid, before the hospital, sort of in between St. John's? Like, are they considered paramedicine or is it just the medical people? So St. John's, where you are, is, uh, as I understand, a a voluntary organisation. So it's volunteer first aid services. St. John's in some states um, in Australia, i.e. Northern Territory and Western Australia, they have a contract to provide the triple zero ambulance service also. So at the moment, if we talk Australia-based, because it's complicated in different countries, there's different laws. In Australia, since December 2018, um, paramedics have been a registered profession um, governed by APRA. Um, So we have to be registered. We have to do a certain amount of continued professional development every year. And paramedic is a protected title. So unless you have been registered, um, you've put in an application, you've paid for your registration through APRA. Unless that has happened in Australia, then you cannot use the term paramedic and you're not involved in paramedicine as such. Um, So, and first aid, so with your question about between first aid and the hospital, yeah, sometimes the first aid, we literally provide that because there is nothing else that needs to be done than, you know, a bit of a clean up or a bandage and take somebody to hospital or or just care for them on scene. But um, generally we do um, everything from either taking over from first aiders on scene 
um, whether that's bystanders, whether that's somebody um, that is a volunteer with our own organisation, um, yeah. a paramedic crew will then take over and then we provide that patient care to the hospital. And then you hand over at the hospital. Sure. Gotcha. All righty. So then what's your background in paramedicine? Because I said paramedic and author. Um, what's your background as a paramedic? Um, so I first um, started in South Australia. Um, I wanted to be a paramedic, so I became a volunteer there. That's um, okay. one of the pathways if you live in the country. Um, I became a volunteer, did a, a Cert 2 qualification, Cert 4 qualification, um, did ambulance shifts in my community, and then also studied at Flinders University for a paramedicine degree. Um, and I then I won a scholarship with them also for a, a job at the end of that uh, uh, degree course. But before I finished it, I moved to Western Australia. So became an ambulance officer in Western Australia uh, whilst finishing that paramedic degree and then became a paramedic. Um, then went into teaching. So I've taught in um, Western Australia, Tasmania, um, Northern Territory, and then obviously for uh, lots of paramedics Australia-wide and uh, internationally online as well. Um, I then also became a uh, preceptor or a mentor um, in Western Australia, working with student ambulance officers. And then I, throughout that time, I was doing postgraduate studies in intensive care and critical care. Oh, and wow. then I wrote a book, uh, finished a book at the same time. So, and that was published last year. Oh, wow. What's the book about? Um, so it's called The Good, the Bad and the Ugly Paramedic. And it's a pain-free approach to best patient care and paramedic professionalism. And basically, it's a book about um, the fact that uh, we're all human. We aim to do our best. And it's basically a friendly approach to help paramedics to grow the good habits that they can have, uh, break bad habits that they may have and undo any ugly habits that are beginning to shape up. Um, so that's the book. It's um, for student paramedics. It's for people that are interested in the profession. And it's also for veteran paramedics, basically anybody that's involved in pre-hospital care. So has that been um, a discussion that's happening in the industry at the moment in terms of being more human-centered care, less instructional checkbox care? Uh, is that a shift that's happening in the industry? It's always been a conversation. It's always been the ideal or in medical terms, we call it the gold standard. It's always been the gold standard to be empathetic and human centered um, towards patients, towards each other, towards our profession. But in paramedicine, as with many other um, high pressure jobs or um, emergency services in particular, it can be difficult for people to maintain that purely due to the um, situations that they face in their role and also due to the high volume of work. Okay. Um, and what's staffing like at the moment? So high volume, is it another one of those industries that's understaffed, which causes pressure? That's one of those catch-22 conversations because... Um, there really is no answer. So, you know, we, as an industry, we may say that we're understaffed because of the call volume, 
but the call volume increases with more people going to the emergency department. And so it's a cyclical issue. Yeah, okay. So at the moment where, you know, it could be a staffing issue, it could be a ramping issue where we spend hours and hours waiting in a corridor at hospital because we can't hand over that patient. Or it could be um, an industrial issue. There's so many, so many um, facets to that problem. Yeah, cool. So, um, I mean, I guess the reason that I reached out to you was because I saw empathy in paramedicine, which sort of alerted my lights and went, oh, we like this. So that's kind of what I want to talk about today um, is really that empathy space. What's going on in empathy and mental health in um, paramedicine at the moment? Um, and when I talk about empathy, I talk about three relationships. So with the client or patient in your case, mm -hmm. so with the patient, with the colleague and for self. So if we can explore that a little bit today. Um, sure. First off, I guess to really give us an insight as to what you love about it, what's your favourite thing about being a paramedic? Like what is it that keeps you going? Um. If I had to, it's always difficult to narrow it down to one thing, but I think the most satisfying thing for me um, would be if, if I arrive either by myself or with a colleague, I arrive on scene and it's chaos and people are upset. If by the time we're transporting that patient and or their family members, if we have them laughing by the time we leave that house, yeah, well. that always gives me massive satisfaction. That's awesome. Um, I've had one incident with, I almost gave birth in an ambulance, um, with two very, very green paramedics who had, um, like, I'm fine, just let me do my thing. So luckily I didn't give birth in an ambulance. Um, <laughs> um, so in terms of the mental health of paramedics themselves what's going on in that sort of space because we talk a lot about um, the mental health of emergency services so fireys is um, especially getting talk at the moment with the bushfires mm -hmm. and things like that so fireys yeah. um, police and ambulance officers so what's happening in the mental health space of um, paramedicine at the moment Okay, so that's um, a really, really broad picture at the moment. Um, each state ambulance service is doing their best to address that as okay. well as they can. Um, the industry itself, um, we have some governing bodies and um, particularly now we're registered, it makes it slightly easier to try and have everything culminate in one uh, focus. But the, the issue at the moment is really being positively addressed. Um, okay. There's probably some people that will agree with that. I, I make it clear I am no spokesperson for every yeah. single paramedic or for any organisation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, my understanding of it, and as I said, I've got involvements in different states across yeah. the country. Um, my understanding is that ambulance organisations and ambulance bodies are doing their best to try and increase the mental health and well-being of their staff, volunteers and support staff at the moment. Yeah. Um, we've had some investigations in different states, um, government-led investigations into um, paramedic suicide um, and poor mental health issues. And again, like most other industries, it's not until these things are brought to the fore 
and brought to media interest that they can actually gain a bit of traction and that seems to be what's happening at the moment so um you know well-being and support services in different organizations are really increasing heavily um most organizations have um good reach out programs and services that can be provided um the onus obviously is expressed quite often to be on the paramedic themselves or the volunteer or the ambulance officer, whichever yeah. capacity you're in. Um, uh, the onus is, is mostly on the individual and the peers that surround them immediately, you know, that group that they see on a day to day or a week by week basis, yeah. because it would be an impossible task for any uh, mental health program within any organization to be able to check in on a daily basis with every member of the workforce. Um, so when they do place that onus um, on the people themselves, uh, there's a strong emphasis on actually reaching out on empathy for self, on self-recognition of when things are changing, on asking your family to look out for you in terms of you know, any deterioration or uh, any, any changes that seem slightly unusual for that person. So that's where we're at at the moment. Um, everybody working in different arenas, but trying to get to the same goal so that paramedics can maintain great mental health to the level that we are expected to give to our patients. So then what are some of the... Because from my point of view, it would be an incredibly stressful job. Is that one of the drivers for the mental health or poor mental health and the mental health um, initiatives that are happening. So what is it like to be a paramedic in terms of the job itself? Like what sort of things impact your mental health from a, from a job point of view? Okay. Um, from a job point of view, it's, it can be either related to the call and the patients, the situation, the scene itself, or it can be related to uh, where you fit within your peers, or it can be related to your um, uh, your confidence in your clinical practice, gotcha. or it can be related to um, how you feel as part of any organization in particular. So again, multifaceted uh, problem because it's yeah. there are so many things that affect the individual, um, you know much better than I do in this space. There are so many things that affect the individual and trying to, uh, empathize and understand and listen to each individual's concerns and where any stressors may be coming from yeah. um, can be quite difficult. Um, yeah. Personally, for me, um, the uh, one of the uh, one of the least stressful things is often the calls we attend themselves. Oh, really? Um, yeah, um, but that's that's a very personal thing. Yeah. Um, Again, I wait for the flurry of feedback from my colleagues at work and then also from people online, but that, that's cool. I can live with that. Um, because it depends how we approach our role. It depends how we approach our uh, clinical care. It depends how we approach our education, our empathy around the job and our approach to our entire role, whether one thing may be more stressful than another. Yeah, okay. So what sort of things do you do that, help you cope with the call so that they don't become um, as stressful as I would imagine because you would see some stuff. Mm. Okay well um, I for the first few years while I was um, 
um, while I was training, while I was studying and um, in volunteer shifts and then in the beginning of um, on-road paid shifts as well as part of my career, I, I had read things, I had watched videos, I had done all of my research. Um, I'm quite a, um, a, I'm somebody that likes to get as much information as I can. The information I had taken on board, my interpretation of that was that I had to care to every minute degree I had to care so much for each patient and everybody yeah. on scene um, it took me a few years to realize that's exhausting I can't do that I got nothing left for myself I've got nothing left for my kids um, I got nothing left for the rest of my personal life and also I realized that I'll probably burn out quite quickly um, I read a lot about compassion fatigue or compassion burnout so I started looking at it in a different way in probably about the third year of my career. And then I worked with um, a lovely bloke um, in Western Australia. I won't say his name, but um, <laughs> worked with a lovely bloke. And he, we had a chat about this and he said to me that one of the ways is looking about how you, looking at how you care for or about patients. So, so with his help, I developed this, this mantra that I now use when I'm teaching that I care 100% for every patient on scene, on every job while I'm with them. Then I don't have to care about them when I leave. Yeah. So whilst that may come across as really harsh, the yeah. differentiation for me is I care for them while I'm with them. I'm not thinking about my family. I'm not thinking about what I'm going to eat for lunch. I'm 100% involved present. in caring for them. Yes, and present and doing everything that I can to the nth degree. So even if, even if that inner voice is saying, oh, I really don't need to do this bit. I'll go, yeah. no, I'll still do that bit. Even when I'm tired at four o'clock in the morning, even if the patient is um, perhaps difficult to deal with because of um, uh, intoxication or because yeah. of they're frustrated or angry, whatever. So if I care 100% for them to the best of my ability, I then walk away from that job and I don't remember them afterwards pretty much. I don't care about them. So if I go to something that's really sad, I may go with colleagues who have a different approach and it's not the wrong approach. It's just different from mine and it works for them. But they may, they may look at a job and go, oh, this was terrible. Did you read about this in the paper afterwards or did you see yeah. this on the scene? And I'll say, no, I don't want to see that. I don't want to know. I don't want to care about the person and their life I just want to care for them so that I can then go home and not think about them afterwards absolutely because and that's in I think all empathy situations is you have to realize that you are you have boundaries and you have limits and that self-care and self-compassion means that you can bring your best to the next person um, yes. I've heard of fireys as well who will not look at the paper they will not look at the um, at the write up. They don't want to know who the people were, nope. um, and it's not callous. It's self care, so that they can be in a better position to care for the next to the next job. Exactly, that's it. And also on scene, you know, I don't I don't particularly want to um, get so emotionally involved that I start crying and I can't do my job properly when all of the people on that scene need my assistance and that of my colleagues. Um, I feel that I can provide the best assistance by maintaining that um, slight detachment 
but as I say, 100% care. So not aloof detachment, 100% no. care for, um, but not caring about afterwards so much. Yeah. Obviously, there's always some job. There's, there's always, you know, there's jobs that, um, that it feels like they, they get under your skin, they, they sneak in. And they're in particular, they're the ones where we have a, an extended period of time after the clinical interventions are over, where we're dealing with emotions for a long period of time. Yeah. That can be more taxing. Then how do you then, I guess, in terms of the culture, because um, you've said that everybody seems to deal with it very differently. Um, in terms of the culture of paramedicine, you, um, you lecture, you mentor. What is it that you tell your students in terms of their mental health and how they approach things? How, does, how are you sort of helping to shape a positive mental health culture with the students? So they're obviously pretty green coming into it. Um, generally, my take on it is to remind them to actually be themselves. We all have different um, human experiences uh, before we came into this job. Um, so I try to encourage people to focus on the way you feel is the way you feel. And in paramedicine and other emergency services and, and similar jobs, um, there's a lot of bravado. There has, there has to be, you know, I've, there's a chapter in my book called The Bluff. And it's purely about, you know, we put on this bluff coat when we get somewhere because we have to step up and we have to take control. Yeah. But it's really just as important. And we don't teach anyone to take that off and return to being your actual individual, vulnerable, compassionate self. Um, so I try to encourage students or, um, or people that I'm having this discussion with to remember who you are and that one size doesn't fit everyone. So you may work with somebody like me who deals with the job in terms of going 100% care for a patient so that I don't have to care about them afterwards when I lie in bed at night. That might not work for the person that I'm working with. They may need to go in and they may need to become, um, they may need to sympathize if you like and connect strongly with a patient or they, that may work for them. And then they may have a way of dealing with it afterwards that works for them so that they don't get compassion fatigue but trying to maintain your individual characteristics and the things that work for you, I feel is probably the safest option. Is that sort of compartmentalization in a way of going, when you cross through the door at home, leave the job at home? Like how do you manage those sorts of almost relationships where you would bring some stuff home, you would think, or some people would. How do you manage it with family? Um, so that, like you, you mentioned before, asking them for help and asking for their support. How do you do that in a way where you're not actually telling them things that um, bring up more upset for you and you upset them? How do you manage that sort of work-life compartmentalization as such? Um, again, I think um, it's important, something I try and teach is find find a way to actively track that for yourself. Um, my method is on the way to work, to a shift, I listen to podcasts that are work-related. So I am becoming, you know, a working mode, if you like. Um, when I leave work, if I'll try and I'll try and address any difficult conversations at work when they happen because again I don't want to take any of that home I don't want to leave things unsaid or yeah. any conflict not dealt with unless it, it doesn't really matter and you can shake it off 
I try and have all of my ducks in a row when I leave work um, so that I can get in the car, change my t-shirt, get in the car, and then I'll play music or a, a humorous podcast or listen to an audiobook, something that's completely not work related. So if you like, it's a physical and mental process of leaving work behind. Yeah. Um, uh, when I was, uh, my, my kids don't live with me anymore. Um, they're very good at, uh, over the years, they know how to recognize if something's changing. And if I, if I go and see them, they might go, wow, you're a bit, you're a bit short-tempered or you, you know, they might notice something that's different. And then, you know, we'll talk about, is that something that's happening in my personal life? Is it something that I'm taking away from work that I hadn't noticed until they pointed it out? Also, um, um, in uh, when I was married, um, I would make every effort to not come home. The kids were small. I was married. I didn't want to come home and talk about the work that I'd done or the jobs yeah. that I'd been to. But occasionally there would be jobs, as I said earlier, there's some that get under your skin. Occasionally there's been probably, let's say, eight to 15 times in my career that a job has got under my skin and I can still feel it in the car. It's almost like yeah, a physical okay. feeling. I can't shake it off. So in those instances, I um, have either rung, rung ahead um, to my husband at the time and said, um, hey, I can't shake off this job. Can we go for a walk before I come in and see the kids? And then, um, you know, we'd have a chat about stuff. Yeah. Or I'd ring a colleague and say, hey, can't shake this job off. And then we'd have a chat about it. And that's always helped me to not bring it across the threshold. Yeah. And I think that's, that's amazing because I think that's also really helpful because you, I mean, that's sort of been born out of a place of severe stress in a sense, and for you to have to, to come up with these tools and techniques. But I think for a lot of people, they could almost put that in place of going, okay, now I'm in work mind and now I'm in home mind. So that there seems to be lots of blur where people are just stressed all the time about work where mm -hmm. they bring it home and they don't know how to talk about it. And it's really powerful that you'd sort of given your kids that language to identify when you were stressed and identify when you were um, not doing so good. And I guess having those tools of communication and not, not thinking you've got to do it all by yourself and be everything to everybody all the time. Um, mm -hmm. My children and know that it's... If Go they on. see mummy eating chocolate, back it up. <laughs> I love it. It's good, isn't it? So it's, it's inherently those clues that we give our family and our loved ones. And um, I can't take the credit for um, having those things in place. Um, I know that there's, there's a, some ambulance services in the UK are currently, and the National Health Service there, are currently issuing checklists to people. Um, for They put them either on the steering wheel of the car or they put them on their locker door, wherever they see things as they leave the workplace. And it's yeah. a checklist in terms of, you know, how's your mental health? Have you spoken to someone? Do you need to talk about a job? Have you got your, your keys, your wallet, your phone? You know, the general stuff so they can yeah. tick through that. And um, also when I was studying... Um, I had a, a great, uh, Flinders Uni was one of the, the first places I came across that did um, programs in terms of one of the units for the degree was purely paramedic well-being based. Yeah, and it was really good because it dealt with shift work, it dealt with diet, it dealt with um, yeah. sleep, um, hygiene, all of that kind of stuff. So that was useful. I learned a lot there. And also um, uh, my employer in WA several years ago, um, many years ago, we had these uh, 
we had a fridge magnet. I think it was a fridge magnet that um, it was to take home with you. And it was literally a list of things for your family to look for. And I don't have it anymore, but I had it when yeah. my kids were smaller. And it was such a valuable thing um, that it was just a innocuous little piece of your home yeah. at the fridge door where everybody goes there several times a day. And there might just be something that they would notice. And that's certainly one of the things that helped my kids learn to be aware of when something might be wrong with mum. Yeah, because that seems really holistic and um proactive and empathetic to go okay we know that if someone's stressed they're probably going to forget their wallet they're going to be absent-minded they're not going to think about this stuff they're just going to push it under the under the rug so mm -hmm. even the thing on the on the steering wheel seems really holistic and loving and proactive i think a lot of places tend to go once it's broken talk to somebody and that's our mental health tick um sure like we offer an eap for when stuff goes wrong instead of being um I guess that little bit more proactive in realizing and that's practical as well. That's mm. like, yeah, that's, that's really cool. I love that. It's so good, then, isn't it? I love it too. Yeah. And I think a lot of us could almost put those sorts of checklists in place in a lot of ways and not go, Oh, I have to be everything to everybody all the time. No, just take a breath. Have you got everything? Mm -hmm. Are you, are you cool? Yep. <laughs> are yep. you together? Okay. Now go into that meeting. Um, yeah, that's, that's true empathy, isn't it? Empathy for yourself when you can say, okay, I'm just as important to be validated as everyone else. Have I got what I need to continue with my day? Yeah. And am I bringing my best self to this meeting? Because yeah. I'll always get a better result or with this client or with this customer or with this patient, I will always get a better result if I've got my ducks in a row and I've got support and I've got my head on straight not that I've, like you said, not to be aloof about it, but to go, yeah, okay, I'm cool. It's all good. Mm -hmm. I can bring my best self instead of I'm worn down. Because I think that in the general population, they go, I can't be empathetic because it's too much. I have to take on too much. And you go, no, no, no. Boundaries and self-care yeah. are part of empathy. And I think yeah. for you guys, it's that, but on steroids, because now you're life and death. Yes. Yep. Exactly. And um, I did a. I was uh, writing an article last month um, that hasn't been published um, yet, but it's for some a magazine. But I um, I had to. I, I tried to write down uh, empathy for ourselves. Let's uh, say so I had a list of why it's important for each of the people we deal with and for different reasons, but also for ourselves. And one of the things that I did probably two or three years ago, but I hadn't even realised it was an empathetic approach, was what you're saying in terms of boundaries and um, we will have several patients or you know, we'll deal with people that have ongoing issues in terms of uh, life trauma that they've been through or you know stories that they want to tell and sometimes it can be really difficult particularly in the middle of the night you're tired um, you've dealt with several jobs you may have done several um, quite upsetting jobs, for instance, and then you have somebody that's telling you a horrific story um, in great detail that's not relevant to yeah. the problem that we're attending. Um, I hadn't realized that I'd started doing it until I wrote that article, and I thought well, a couple of years ago, um, I remember saying to, for the first time ever to a patient, I'm really sorry, I don't want to cut you off there. Um, I really care for what's happening with you at the moment. And I want to provide the best care I can. 
if I hear all of your story, I can engage fully with you because we'll be at the hospital soon and I'll have to cut you off halfway through. How about for both of our mental health and well-being, we actually just deal with the issue at hand and then I'll make sure that I give a heads up to the nursing staff um, that you need to speak to somebody about this situation. And it was probably one of the most empowering things I did for myself in terms of empathy at work. But I do remember feeling a bit uncomfortable about it afterwards in case it looked like I didn't care or I didn't want to hear it. But I realized that I am, I can't take on, I physically and mentally cannot take on board and no paramedic can, no police officer can, no firefighter, doctor, nurse. Nobody can take on board all of the worries of the world and carry them around and still care for themselves. Oh, absolutely. And if you take it from the point of view of like feeling heard as a fundamental universal human need, mm. then for that patient, they would have had a, in my opinion, they would have had a much stronger reaction and a much more positive reaction to going, look, I care about your story. I care about what's going on right now. I cannot take it on. This is important. I'm going to tell a nurse as opposed to you sort of half listening and half yes. doing your job and and then, you know what I mean? I, to me, that would have been a much more empathetic approach to both of you. And so that, because a lot of people think, well, I've got to listen and take it all in. You're going, no, no, you're allowed to say this isn't, this is too big or this isn't the right time or the right place, but this is important. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then how do you, um, in your world, how do you make people feel heard and visible and valued um, in crisis and situations like that without giving too much of your yourself how do people manage that um i think that the only way is to actively listen um so that you can simply hear the patient or the the bystander or everybody there there may reach a point when it's extremely chaotic where we have to say okay everybody stop for a second i, I do want to hear all of this but we need, we need to go one at a time. Most important thing at the moment is what's going on with the patient. Who can give me a bullet point list of what's happening? And then that gives people a starting point, I find. And then from there, um, continuing to ask questions. One, because I want to empathize and you know, validate and listen to their concerns. But two, that's the only way I'm gonna to get to the bottom of what's happening and what we need to do next. Um, and it generally just seems to follow a pattern. I think um, the more questions you ask, the more people feel heard, the more they feel validated. And people love being asked questions, don't they? You know, whether it's, whether it's patient care, whether it's you know, hanging out with friends, whether it's dating, whatever it is, people love to be asked questions. And I think if, if we're able to ask questions in a present manner, yeah. instead of just um, throw away question to distract someone. If we can ask and be present for the answer, then people will step into that space and keep filling it and they feel validated purely by your presence there. So then, oh, abs I agree 100%. I mean, we shout that from the rooftops at Lose Your Mind. <laughs> um, because you think the difference between telling somebody what to do and asking for their involvement and getting them included in their own um, in managing a situation as opposed to going, well, you should just stand over there and you should just stand over there. Um, mm -hmm. 
the same as anybody really. I think I've said it before, like kids are more likely to eat the food if they're all, if they're involved in preparing it as opposed yeah. to going, you need to eat this. Like nobody yeah, likes to be told what to do. <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> so then in terms of relationship with the public, so I've talked about relationship with self a bit and what what paramedics can do um, to, I guess, improve their mental health and improve their performance and improve their relationships and things like that. A little bit about colleague relationships and organisational. Um, and quite often it does come down to just, listen, I say just, but listening and making someone feel heard and visible and valued mm -hmm. in their role. Yep. What do you think the relationship with the public is at the moment? Is Are there any misconceptions? Is there anything that the public... Because, I mean, we have millions of listeners, so we're speaking to everybody here. So what are the sort of things that the public can do to make it easier for you guys? Because we've talked a lot about what you guys do and the onus is on you a lot. But what sort of things can the public do or what do you want us to know or understand about your job and your role and how we can do better? Wow, that's a huge question. Excuse me while I leg it out of here because of the pressure. Um, um, no, but in, in all seriousness, um, the public the public relationship is a two-way street. Um, there's a, another chapter in the book that called, that's called Public Perception Means Everything. Because if we are, if we have only good habits in the public arena, then the public naturally trust us, like us, want to help us feel safe. If we develop bad habits or ugly behaviors, um, you know, in terms of driving, in terms of, in terms of any behavior, where we park, those kind of things, it only takes one member of the public for us to upset, for one paramedic to upset one member of the public, that member of the public will then speak to everybody that they know. They may even go on social oh, media and reach millions of literally millions of people based on their perception of what happened. The paramedic may have not behaved badly necessarily, however, their perception of what happened. So it spreads like wildfire, doesn't it? And then um, each of the people that are affected by that, they may then dislike or even hate paramedics all paramedics because of one instance that they saw. So we or have heard of. To, or heard of, exactly, that's it. So we have um, a big responsibility to uphold there. You know, we've, um, in Australia, we were voted the most trusted profession, I think it's the Reader's Digest um, poll for several oh. years in a row, which is lovely. It's a lovely accolade. However, that trust needs to be maintained continuously. It doesn't just automatically happen, does it? And then on the other side of the coin, and basically in that public perception thing, we, we want the general public to care about us or care for us the way we care for them in terms of how they drive past us. You know, um, so in answering your question, I feel like I'm going in a roundabout, I'm That's sorry. Okay. Um, in in the pub, what the public can do on the other side of the coin is... Um, I don't have a TV. I haven't had one for over 10 years since I started this job because I just don't want to see what goes on. But I know that there are several uh, ambulance related shows and something oh, that yeah. I have noticed over increasing over the last three or four years, especially is turning up on jobs. We used to have a bit of a mysterious air about us. People yeah. would be like, oh, I'm so glad you're here and then hand over to us. But now because we're so heavily publicized on TV, 
a lot of people have watched every single episode of every single show and they feel that they know our job. Um, they, they may, yes, yes, when people are on scene, we've signed up to be there out of choice in that emergency. They haven't. Patient, family member, bystander, whoever it is, they're not there out of choice. Therefore, I'm empathetic and as a profession, we're empathetic to the situation that they found themselves in through no fault of their own or through no yeah. choice of their own. But one of the things that does happen, and it ranges from comments and calls from people to do a particular thing because they've seen it on TV and that's what we should be right. doing. But it can also lead to violence, i.e. picking up a, a cardiac defibrillator and trying to smash you in the head with it because they, you need to shock that person because that's what they do on TV. So that's probably one of the biggest things where... As I say, it's, it's, it's a fair game. You know, we, we aim to be as professional and caring as we can, yeah. and we hope for the same thing back. So, you know, being aware that we are highly trained in our jobs. We do, we do do our best for patient care, and sometimes there'll be clinical reasons why we're not doing what a person may think that we should be doing. And also, you know, if we're, if we're stopped on the road, driving past us, if people could slow down, if people could pull out past us, it would be so lovely to not have cars squeezing past you at 50 to 100 k's an hour, <gasps> almost cl clipping your clothes. You know, it's, yeah. it's dangerous. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it's that level of respect as well. It is mutual respect, two-way yeah. street, mutual respect. Again, at the end of the day, we are all humans. We're all trying to go about our day, however that may look. So for the public and for paramedics and other emergency services that mutual respect for other humans would be just lovely yeah and have you noticed that a change in i guess the types of um events that paramedics are being called to i think in terms of like mental health or like is that a is that a shift that's happening yeah, it's definitely increased. I know when I started my studies initially, I think it was the percentages were, these are not specific, I'm just from recall, around about 28% um, were um, mental health calls or mental health related calls. And then I think at the moment, the stats are around about 40 to 45%. Again, don't quote me on that, but it's definitely increased, whether that's through um, an increase in... Um, mental health issues or perhaps an increased awareness in the need to address mental health issues that may have yeah. always been there um, but certainly that increases and one of the things that makes it more difficult is we we may transport patients to an emergency department uh, with mental health issues whether the services are available for them yeah. there at that time or not so people are discharged more often into the community or um you know the facilities are just not there to deal with the issues when they're an, on an emergent basis yeah. so sometimes it, it can become a cycle for that patient where they're not getting the help they need therefore we attend more often yeah okay do you find that the spectrum now of what's being called out for ambulances in terms of mental health is changing because in, in my mind, you would call an ambulance if someone is in immediate danger. But are you getting called out for, I guess, more subtle things or more um, yeah, like yeah, less definitely. immediate? 
Yeah, definitely. You know, we go to um, we'll go to um, social crisis issues, and we'll go to um, instances where people simply can't get access to the medications that they need, and they right. don't feel safe at home without it. So um, we're we're there to deal with that, and you know, we don't necessarily um, we won't don't necessarily take them lights and sirens to hospital, but we will do our best to get that person the care that they need. Yeah, wow. Because I think that's a whole that's a whole other discussion. I mean, even the majority of people rocking up to the GP at the moment, it's a mental health issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. what do you see happening in the future for the culture of paramedicine? Is it getting better and we can there's this paramedic utopia waiting ahead of us or <laughs> um I I think it's 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 getting better in terms of um again awareness is increasing that uh, everybody involved needs um needs assistance everybody you know the organizations themselves it's okay for them to reach out and have a conversation and be heard by the staff in terms of what they need it's just a matter of keeping that two-way conversation open uh for support staff for paramedic staff for you know call taking and dispatch staff for people to reach out and keep a two-way communication open so that they can ask for what they need so that their needs can be heard and then also in terms of the industry itself now that we're a regulated registered profession in australia that does simplify things somewhat in terms of um, there's a more central place to uh, keep track of who is out there there's a more central place to um to get information to all of the paramedics available or or everybody that's registered there's also an increase in organizations like um i'm sorry if i missed anyone out here but we've got things like um behind the scene we've got sirens of silence we've got different charities that have been set up to try and um focus purely on emergency first responder mental health and well-being oh wow that's amazing that's fantastic it's great. And then we've got people like, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Erin Cotter-Smith. She's a, she's a lecturer at uh, Karen University and different universities. But she's done a lot of work, particularly over the bushfire season that's been so horrific for everybody this year. She's done so much work in terms of um, first responder mental health and resilience and disaster management. That's those conversations that tend to be increasing that's great to increase the awareness and the accountability on the first responders, sorry, first responders right up through to the organizations and then the governing bodies that run them. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That, yeah. Thank you so much for um, talking to me today. I've learned so much. Um, oh, no worries. I want to go. It's been a pleasure. I've loved it. I, I want to go hug an Ambo now. Um, <laughs> thank you oh dear. do people do people do that like do people write or because i always wanted to say thank you to to the two ambulance officers who helped me but do people do that do they they do um less less often than they used to you know we used to we get uh, if somebody writes in um different services do it different ways but you know you'll get a pat on the back you might get a written commendation and that's something if you get something in writing like a certificate you can um you can keep it as part of your portfolio so it helps with your career yeah. progression but you know people do write in or they might um you know somebody might stop in a coffee shop and say hey i can i buy you guys a coffee or people might let you jump ahead in the queue and you know that the kindness of humans that we get to see on a daily basis is just it's just fantastic and one of the things that I have to say about empathy and kindness 
in in a world where it feels like at the moment we're we're surrounded by vitriolic chatter on social yeah. media and people ready to jump down everyone's throat a dog eat dog world one of the things as much as we you know people say to us you must see some terrible things and we try and avoid that question because yeah. your brain doesn't really want to go there no. but um i always try and answer and a lot of people do the same we get to see fantastic things. We get to see, you know, we're not heroes, we're doing a job, but we get to see real heroes who may be driving home from work and they see somebody collapsed on the side of the road and they go out of their way to stop their car and render assistance. And, or they, you know, just kindness of humanity. People get blankets out of their vehicles. They may give water to someone that's dehydrated. They may sit there for two hours in scorching heat, waiting for paramedics to arrive whilst they care for a stranger. CPR in progress, you know, people that get involved hands on doing things that are very confronting and applying defibrillation pads. Those things are terrifying for people that haven't been trained to do it. But the kindness of humans that we get to see, and then that kindness when it's extended to us as well, it's beautiful, makes it really, really worthwhile. Oh, what a beautiful ending. Thank you so much, Tammy. <laughs> um, and what you. was your book, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly of Paramedicine? Is that right? Uh, the, almost, yeah. The good, the bad, and the ugly paramedic. The good, the bad, and the ugly paramedic. Well, you That's are a beautiful one. paramedic. And um, thank you so much for talking to me today. Um, my name's Leanne Butterworth. That was Tammy Bullard. This is Listening at the Orange Door by Lose Your Mind. Um, next time, I don't know who we're talking. Oh, I've got a nurse. We've got a vet. We've got a tattoo artist coming up and a lawyer. So they're... Um, episodes to look out for in the future thank you so much tammy i'll talk to you soon thank you leanne thank you so much